Our New Testament passage will be first verses, we'll read verses 1 through 12, but we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. Really, we're coming to the end of the book. This is really a summary of his teaching and his tests. Uh, There's a testimony concerning the Son of God and his concluding remarks. But this is really the summary of all that he's been trying to work up to, the, the understanding we should have about what it means to be a Christian and how we know we're a Christian. And so we'll look at his summary today, but let's read 1 John chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this that we know we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have enjoyed studying through the book of 1 John and the wonderful insights the Apostle of Love has been able to give us on what it means to love you, what it means to be loved by you, and how it is we know that we love you and have been loved by you. And as we wrap up this section of tests that John has given us. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see and to consider and to reform our own lives, that we might be walking closer to you, that we might not be ashamed on the day you visit us, but that having examined our hearts according to the word, according to the tests that are here, that we might have confidence in approaching you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So these verses are really a summary of chapters 2 through 4. Chapter 1 being more of an introduction. And the tests that are in the first the first section, chapters 2 through 4. And the, the summary is really helpful because it drives everything together. And it links them all together. And here, particularly in the first two, two verses, two and a half verses, we see links being connected between being born again, resulting in our believing, and in Jesus, and in loving, being loved by the Father and loving the Father, and because we're loved by the Father, loving the Father's children, our brotherly love, and in our obedience to God. All of these tests, knowing the truth about God, believing, loving God and loving the brethren, and obeying God. They're all tied together here in these first couple of verses. And that's very important for us. John's been going through those three tests in different ways in those three chapters I mentioned, two through four. And he's been through them a couple of times in, in, in a different perspective each time. And it's very helpful for us because it really drives those points home. Uh, the major tests of starting with obedience, which we have here in verse 2, but we also see the first time really drawn out in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. By this that we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, know God, but don't, doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whatever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so, obedience. If we really love God, we obey God. And as he says here, that is what the definition of love is. Love is obedience to God. He comes back to this concept again. At the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where obedience is really the foundation of our confidence in the day of Christ's coming. And it's ultimately the source of assurance of salvation, as John comes back to today's passage as well. Uh, in John, 1 John 3, the first 10 verses, he continues teaching about obedience and assures us that all of God's children are going to purify themselves, verse 3, and make obedience their lifestyle, verse 7. In other words, well, we're not perfect in love, right? If we say we have not sinned, we make Christ out to be a liar, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That was back in chapter 1. But if we make obedience a lifestyle, we prefer obedience, we seek obedience, we try to be obedient, when we do stumble into sin, when we do do what we know is wrong, we repent of it and seek forgiveness in Christ. We make that lifestyle of obedience. Then we can have confidence because he says, 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is not only not righteous, but has never known Christ, never known God, verse 6, and is in fact an enemy of Christ and a child of the devil, verse 8. And he concludes that section in verse 10 of chapter 3, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John always ties in brotherly love to obedience because that is one of the great commandments. In fact, the summary of the the two commandments, of the Ten Commandments, is given in two commandments. What is love? What is the greatest commandment? really is the explanation of that. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Mark 12, 29, and 30, but it's summarizing the first part of the Ten Commandments, the ones that refer to God, and we call it the first table of the law, but it's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Now, since John has told us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. First John four twenty, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So Jesus adds to the summary, to his statement about the greatest commandment, the second greatest He says, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. That was the next verse in Mark, Mark 12, 31. (coughs) And that was summarizing the second table of the law from Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus wasn't making these up. He was actually quoting to them the Old Testament. So John says... Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning uh, in chapter 2, verse 7. And in verse 9, he goes on to say, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so brotherly love is part of our obedience to God, but it is really a great test of our love for God. And one of the great tests of being then a Christian. Now John continues in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 of chapter 3, talking about love, but he explains it from a different point of view. He says, not only does hating your brother show you're of the world, It shows that you're children of the devil. But he goes on to then say that such people who are children of the world, children of the devil, will naturally hate God's children because they belong to God. And Jesus himself talked about this. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you, John 15, 18, and 19. 
If we don't love God's children, then we don't know God. Likewise, though, if the world doesn't hate us, we should be worried about whether we really know God. Because it says, if, if God's stamp is on us, right? if we are transformed into the image of his son, if we are living his, the life of God correctly, they will see God in us, in our life. And because they hate God, they will hate us. And so if they aren't hating us for God being in us, then is God really in us? Now, such a harsh word and such a harsh worldview is softened a bit with the encouragement in chapter 2, verse 16, which says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Christ died for us, for our sins, to pay the price for us, to be a propitiation for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might have eternal life. And we have to lay down our lives for our brothers. He concludes with the reminder of the need for sincerity, though, in brotherly love. Now, he uses the example of the world's goods similar to what James does. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is not words that are empty. Love is action. It's seen in the deeds that we do. And sincerity was called for in brotherly love. And in our passage today, particularly in verse 3, sincerity is called out again concerning our love for God. Now, also, the third test, the first test in chapter 2 was the test of obedience, the second test, the test of love, and now finally we have the test of belief or faith or, as it works out in John, First John, also it's a test of doctrine. Again, not just empty words, but reality. He starts his doctrinal test by warning us in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. The doctrinal test starts off with warning us about the many antichrists who have gone out into the world. Remember, literally, an antichrist is somebody who is against Christ. A pseudo-Christ is somebody who claims they're Christ but isn't Christ. An antichrist is somebody who is opposing Christ, either openly or through deception. They teach a Christ who is not the Christ of the Bible. They're the heretical teachers, false prophets, who are teaching doctrines against what the Bible teaches, particularly concerning who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did for us. Those three things are their main targets. John says of these antichrists in verse 26 of chapter 2, I write these things about you, or about those who are trying to deceive you. He wants to warn us because they are active in their attempts to deceive us, and we need to be warned so that we can avoid falling into their trap and being deceived 
by then. In verse 20 and 21, we're told that we, the children of God, we have the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And again, when John talks, returns to this topic in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is again about doctrine and faith and belief. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, They are from the world, and they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Uh, The point being that we can be encouraged that those who listen to false teachers are the world, but God's children will understand their teaching is against Christ, it's against truth, it's against scriptures, and we will turn from those teachings, and we will hear the teachings from the word. And so the doctrinal test is really about, are we going to listen to the false teachers, or are we going to listen to God? Uh, It doesn't take tremendous experience and tremendous wisdom. I think I shared before, I wanted to get a study Bible when I first became a Christian, a Christian for like a week. And I discovered the people in my Sunday school class were all reading from a study Bible. So I went to the God's for Sale stores. It was jokingly referred to a Christian bookstore that had Christian and Catholic stuff all mixed together from every walk. And I was wandering around and I found the study Bibles and I found I really knew I needed to be filled with the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit is what had saved me. And I wanted to have that spirit-filled life that I'd read about. And so I found the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. Got it home and, you know, Christian for a couple of weeks. Started reading it. And I'm like, what in the world are these people talking about? This makes no sense. This is total nonsense. And in fact, it seems evil. And so the same week I returned it. Um, because it was a very unbelieving, charismatic, um, very bizarre study Bible, it turns out. Now, you don't need a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, if you're a believer, and you will know the teaching of the world versus the teaching of God. You should. Where we run into trouble is when we like the teaching of the world better. When the things of God are hard for us and undesirable to us. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. So we've been warned. (coughs) And the bottom line comes down to the warning is that no one who denies the Son, that is, who denies the biblical truths concerning the Son, his person, who he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is truly man, truly God, denies his work, especially on the cross, denies his truths, what he taught, his teaching, which is really all of Scripture. No one who denies that biblical Jesus has the Father or has eternal life. And we saw that in chapter 2, particularly verse 23. Now, all of these tests are summarized again in chapter 5, the first two and a half verses. 
but they're woven together like chains. You have obedience linked to love, love linked to belief, belief linked back to obedience. They're all interlinked together in John's explanation here. Uh, First, though, I want you to note the grammar in verse 1. Some translations really lose this. The ESV does a pretty good job catching the truth here. The one who believes is in that state because he has been born of God. Note the tenses. Uh, The one who believes... has been born of God. Cause and effect. The cause of his believing is that he was born of God. Some mistakenly try to turn this the other way around, and some translations don't translate the tenses as the way it is in the Greek. They swap the tenses backwards, confusing the issue, and want it to mean Because they believed, they became children of God. But that's not what it says. It says the one who believes has been already, perfect tense there, born of God. And I think that's in keeping with the teachings of Scripture. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And that's keeping with the promise we saw in the Old Testament that we talk about often in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle you with clean water, God says. And you shall be clean from your uncleanness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you, cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. And once God has done that, then we are his children. And then we can believe. Uh, next, note the connections. We are born of God. We become children of God. And therefore we believe in the biblical, true, historical Jesus. And if we've been born of God, we will love the Father. If we love the Father, we love those who are born of the Father, our brethren. And how do we know we really love the brethren? And this is a key point here, very important in verse 2. By this we know we love the children of God. When we give them money, when we give them our lunch, what does it say? When we love and obey his commandments, God's commandments. How do we know we love the brothers? By doing what God wants us to do, by keeping his commandments. And that's what verse 3 will tell us. That this is what it means to love God, to obey him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14:15 as well. All these tests, though, have been given in an interconnected and interdependent manner. Failing, ev- evident, failing any of them is really evidence that we failed the main point. That question our faith, question that we are a believer. <coughs> if we break the chain at any point. And that's why he's connecting them and tying them together for us. Now note verse 3. Highlight it. Underline it. Circle it. 
Copy it to a three by five. Commit it to memory. Meditate upon it. Print it out. Put it on a frame. Hang it on the wall where you can see it. This is important. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If we aren't keeping his commandments as a way of life, then we aren't loving God. He's hammered this point to us over and over again. Not just in John, in 1 John, but also in the Gospel of John and the words of Jesus. <coughs> now, when people get to the next part of the verse, grumble, grumble, moan, moan. And his commandments are not burdensome. And I think this is the key of this passage. This is another one of John's Jewish-style chiasms. He begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 5 with belief, going in a little bit of obedience. And then here in verse 3, the central point, obedience is not a burden. It's not a problem. (coughs) God's commandments, his requirements, his word, should be a joy to the believer, not a burden. We've had our heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We've been caused to walk according to his statutes and his commands. We will now see his commands in a very new light. Since I want to abide in God and I want him to abide in me, I know what God's word says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First John 2, 6. So I asked myself the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119.9 If you want to be encouraged about the Bible, just read Psalm 119. Truly your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 105 God's commandments teach us how to abide in him. Forgive me if my voice is really gone and I'm on my last cough drop. You know, therefore, I love the commandments of God. I love the commandments more than gold, above fine gold. I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. Psalm 119, verse 127 and 128. Now, this is meshing exactly with what John has been telling us. We don't listen to the false teachers and the worldly wisdom. We love the precepts. Oh, how I love your laws, my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. (coughs) The believer loves God, and therefore he loves his word and loves his commands. We should be crying out, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Psalm 119, verse 129. My soul keeps your testimonies, I love them exceedingly. Verse 167, that should be our heart, a delight. We see them as treasures. We see them as joy. We see them as 
the finest and most delicious things in the world. Better even than fine gold. But what about those who are not his children? The children, the commandments of God are really beyond them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When the natural person looks at the commandments of God, they don't make sense, and so they offer a different interpretation, or they start talking about how it was provincial, or how we have better scientific knowledge, or how you know our society has evolved, or how we now know, you know, that gender is not genetic, but or not part of your being, but it is psychological. Uh, they, they don't accept what the Bible says. Why? Because the things of God are foolishness to them. They can't accept it. The believer also, the unbeliever, also sees the commandments of God as shackles. They want to show, throw off the shackles of God and live a free life. And so they're viewing them not as treasures, not as fine gold, but as something that interferes with them having fun in doing what they want. And the unbeliever sees the condemnation of sin, of sin as really evil. What makes the godless the most upset of anything in the whole world? Is it murder, rape, or is it a Christian standing up and saying what you're doing is sin? It's really the last. They hate that, and they consider it the greatest evil in the world to tell them that they are sinning, even though it's the only thing that can save them. Now, you might think, well, what does that have to do with me? You know what a person I am when I preach. You know what's coming next. (laughs) Our heart attitude towards what God commands, what God teaches, what God loves and what God hates, what God expects, is really one of the ultimate tests that wraps all the other tests together into itself. It shows us really most clearly whether we are children of God or not, and how we are walking with God. In our Old Testament reading this morning, we looked at the end of the book of Joshua. (coughs) The people had taken possession of the land, and God had given them rest. Joshua summoned them. Yeah, my cough top's about done, so if you have another, I'd appreciate it. (laughs) So Joshua summoned the people and wanted to renew the covenant with them. If you think of the covenant, we're talking the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, everything that was required leading up to them entering the land. And some of it was hard. Some of it was painful. 
Certainly the um, offering of animals could get very expensive for your sin. The restrictions on their life, the ceremonial law especially, was very restrictive. could be quite unpleasant. <coughs> Forgive my voice and my cough. And all of the commandments God had called them to were in mind. And that's why Jesus, or why Joshua gave the warning he did in verse 19. He told them, you're not able to serve the Lord because he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Joshua 24 19. But his challenge to them, verse 14 and 15, is what I want you to consider. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether it is the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the guards of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What does he mean if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord? If it seems evil to you, why would it seem evil to you? Well, I have to give up my sin. Well, I have to give bulls and goats and offerings. Well, I have to pay a tithe. Well, I can't do this and I can't do that. I have to live in such a way that the whole world will recognize me as belonging to God and will hate me and despise me because I'm one of God's people and not one of the world's people. How do we see it as evil to serve the Lord? I think if you talk to Christians, many of them have things that they think are evil in their service to God of what God requires of them. You know, it's easy when we start talking about sin for us to say, well, we don't see that as evil. You know, we know we need to give up that sin. We, Being a drunkard or being into sexual sin or being into greed or idolatry. We might even agree that our anger is not acceptable. And we accept that they're not sin, and we love what God says, and we want to be what God says, but it's hard. But many people will say, you know, I don't, I want to be allowed to be that. I want to be allowed to be angry. I'm not hurting anybody by what I do. It's all, you know, just between me and me. Why does God need to get involved? Why do you tell me I'm wrong? And it's evil to them. Others, they're caught up in the things of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Why do I need to give up? You know, what was one of the first things I was told as a Christian? Well, make sure you don't become so you know, heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. What? <laughs> Is that something that's real? I mean, can you ever be too heavenly minded? 
If you're heavenly minded, you have to take care of the chores that you have in this life, the work that you have to do, the relationships that you have. Whatever your work is, you have to do it as if you were doing it for the Lord. So it's not like you're, you know, you're, Heavenly minded person is not useful in that sense. The only way they're not useful is, you know, they're not useful for doing bad things. I remember I almost didn't get a job once because even though I wasn't a Christian, it was obvious to the hiring manager that when he came to town that I wasn't going to be very fun at party, going out partying with him. And that was what he did. When he traveled to the different cities where he had people, he expected them to take him to nightclubs in places we won't mention and have a good time till three in the morning. And he knew I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> now, no earthly good. The things of the world matter a lot to people. Does it seem evil to give them up? You know, if I have to give up my testimony so that I can get promoted. Is that evil to me? To deny myself a promotion, to deny myself something I want because of my faith? It's a question. But there are many other things. We've looked at some of these passages recently. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I mean, I got to subject myself to Biden. Okay, I'm on dangerous ground now. <laughs> uh, but we start to think, well, maybe I don't like that. Maybe that's evil to me. For many in the church today, Paul's statement to Timothy, and there are supporting statements elsewhere. And do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For as Adam was formed first in the Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 1 Timothy 2, 12-14. Women's Liberation says if women can't be equal, if women can't lead, it's evil. You're a male chauvinist pig. And your Bible is full of you know, male leadership, which is toxic. It's evil. And if you don't allow women pastors and women elders and women Bible school teachers and women Sunday school teachers, then you're evil. But it's what God says, and we just submit ourselves. Does it seem evil to you to serve the Lord under his requirements, his way? And the last one, we've been talking about this recently, particularly in our midweek study, Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to say to the clay, why did you make me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable and one vessel for dishonorable use? Can we accept that God is our infinitely superior creator? that he has a right to decide that our life is going to be the way it is. Does he have a right in his sovereignty to say, no, you will suffer a life of sickness and misery, and you, who are a less significant and worse person, will have a life of blessing and prosperity? 
when we accept that, when we accept that God says, I'm going to harden your wicked heart, and you, even though you're a wicked sinner and evil, I am going to give you faith. Will we accept that, or is that evil? Will we judge God? Is it right for God to work out all things according to the purpose of his will? Or should our will reign supreme? Many people in the church today would say the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty is evil. And to them it seems evil to serve the Lord. There's a huge contrast here. Are we going to rejoice to know what God says and what God wants? Are we going to grumble as the people of Israel did at every turn? Are we going to love God in word? Or are we going to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our minds? Keeping his commandments because we love God and we want to do that from the depth of our heart. God's commandments are heavenly. To love them is to love God. To keep his commandments is to love God. When we do that, we give up our worldly attachments, our worldly attitudes. We become you know, from a different world, as I said when we talked about that passage. They are from the earth under the power of the devil and the kingdom of the devil. And we are in the kingdom of his son. If we love his commandments and don't hold on to the worldly attachments and worldly attitudes, then we overcome the world. So if we've been born of God, we will overcome the world. The commandments are not burdensome simply because they are perfect and reveal to us what God wants, but also because having been born of God, we've been enabled not only to keep them, but to love them. Now, as his children, we view those things differently. We view them as treasures. We've been delivered from that domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his son, and being in his kingdom, we've been conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.28. We abide in him and him in us, and in that manner we are overcoming the world. And it is faith that is the victory that overcomes this world. Remember back in verse 1, we discussed that faith. We are born again, we are believers. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that faith, and that not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is the gift of the love of God for us that we did not deserve. And that should be our encouragement to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. For we've died and our life is hidden in Christ with God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. For Colossians 3, 2-4. If we set our, because we've been born again, our minds are set on the things above now. And that is our overcoming of the things of this world. Essentially, all of these three tests have been brought together here. And they're ultimately tied together in the final analysis. Are you a child of God? Are you going to heaven? Are you walking rightly with God in the light? If so, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. 
You'll love your neighbor as yourself. That is how you know you're a loving God. And you'll love God's commandments and find them a joy, not a burden. Because in obeying God, you really achieve the fulfillment of what your life's desire is. On the other hand, if it seems evil to you and a burden to you and unpleasant to you to do what God's word says, if you get angry when you hear people read God's word and quote it, then you really have to doubt. So the question to us is, are all of God's commandments really a joy and a delight and a treasure? When we find something we didn't know or didn't understand, do we rejoice? When we find something we aren't doing right, that we need to change in our life that might be quite painful, do we rejoice that now I know God better and I can please him better and I'm so thankful that what I was doing wrong I can now do right? Or is it evil in our heart? Let us love God with sincerity and to love God with sincerity means to love his commandments and obey them, and, of course, to love our brother as ourself. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the book of First John and this kind of conclusion of his tests. And we know, Lord, what we need to look to in our own heart. Are we really in sincerity and in truth, loving you, obeying you, respecting your son for who he is, for what he did, for what he taught, and honoring all of that and keeping it all, including most especially loving our brother, which is often hard, and loving you and all that you have commanded. Pray, Lord, that you would show us in our life the things we do need to improve upon to be a better Christian, to be a better child of God, that we might please you and glorify you more. And teach us, Lord, that great joy in finding the things we can fix to make ourselves better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.